Hello, I'm Jeff Bird, the producer of the More Than A Shot podcast. This series was recorded before the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic, and we felt it would seem odd to release further episodes without acknowledging what's happening. More Than A Shot covers some of the big topics of the day before coronavirus came into our lives, issues and topics that aren't going anywhere. In this episode, our guests discuss end of life, a difficult topic under normal circumstances. But this episode was recorded in normal times and so does not reflect current funeral restrictions in place or any other impacts being felt in society because of the pandemic. With that in mind, here's the episode. We hope you find it interesting. Please share. Hello and welcome to More Than A Shop, hosted by me, Elizabeth Holker. We're welcoming guests with something new and radical to say about the big issues of the day. Well, the flavour of the series is a search for new alternative ideas in the spirit of the worldwide cooperative movement, which happens to have started in my hometown of Rochdale. Well, co-ops proudly offer radical alternatives to mainstream ways of getting things done. They are indeed so much more than a shop. Today, we're looking at a subject that many people find difficult to talk about, but which, along with taxes, is famously the only thing we can bank on. And that's end of life, and more particularly, how we might go about normalising the conversation around death, dying, and improving support on this subject. Of course, the co-op has long involvement in this area, and I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by Reagan Drew, who is a funeral director with Co-op Funeral Care, And I'm also joined by Kathleen Lachlan, who has combined a prestigious career as a filmmaker, often looking at issues around death, with service as an ordained Methodist minister. Welcome to you both. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, Kathleen, tell us a little bit about the films that you've made around uh, laughter and death. They're so heartwarming, but funny as well. Actually, they came out of my work as a chaplain in an acute hospital setting at Bolton Hospital, I was asked to be a part of something called Dying Matters Week, and we were looking for ways to help people talk about death and dying and bereavement more easily. And because I was also a filmmaker and had been for many years, I said, why don't we get people who are living with the prospect of dying in the near future to tell us how that feels and to perhaps even tell us a joke about it? You know, initially that idea was received with kind of ashen faces from some of the um, clinicians that I spoke to about this. But hospice, in their wonderful, resourceful and heroic way, said, come and talk to our patients. Come and talk to our service users. And that was the idea behind this film. It's Last Laugh with Alexi Sale. Yes. Last Laugh with Alexi Sale came from this understanding that people who happen to be dying also still want to be living as long and as well as they possibly can. And that includes laughter. And so we got Alexi to talk to four people who all were within a very short period of time likely to die. And Alexi talked to them with boldness and frankness and with a sense of humour about that experience. And they told the jokes. Let's hear it, shall we? I'd certainly think twice about cracking a joke to somebody with a terminal illness. But then, maybe I'm wrong about that. You really have got to laugh with such an amazing tonic. You've got to laugh at the situation because it's quite ludicrous. The Grim Reaper came for me last night and I beat him off with a vacuum cleaner. Where would I stop laughing? Talk about Dyson with death. <laughs> bang, bang, la, 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 shabang. The initial... 
diagnosis was given by the registrar and she just turned to me straight away and said, you know, there's no survival rate from this. Because I did ask her, I said, well, how long have I got? And she says, you don't really want to know the answer to that question. And then just sent me home. Humour is, as we can hear in the clip there, humour is so much a part of dealing with these things, isn't it? And have you found that with the purple people, people that you've worked with? Yes, but I think it not only just humour, but life generally. I think what happens when people receive uh, a terminal diagnosis, as as the people in our film explain, somehow they felt like they were expected to go away to a little corner, lie down on their bed and receive visitors until the inevitable end came. And what they told us is, I want to be able to say what I'm feeling. I want to be a part of the human race. And I think, unfortunately, in our culture, we think of death and the, the grieving that comes in feeling the loss of someone is something you're supposed to go away, get over, and then come back when you're all better. Because we are just not comfortable if you're not all better from these things or obviously, if, if you've died. This is people around those who are dying, not just the people who are dying. Yes. Yeah. So the people around those who are dying, I think, are, are caught in the same unfortunate cultural taboo around death. So if, in fact, you know, you want to go out for a meal and you have um, some medical condition that's, you know, making you look terribly ill, but you still want to go out for a meal and you can, mm -hmm. People may just want to sit you in a corner so that all those tubes and all the things that require for you to go out and have a meal like everybody else would like to have aren't sort of interfering with other people's lives who are out there having that experience. Somehow we can't deal with the fact that people who might have a diagnosis of a terminal illness want to enjoy those last few months. That's still something that we can't quite get our heads around. I think it's really hard. I think we just feel we don't know how to talk about it. Mm. We don't – when someone um, – gets a terminal diagnosis or loses a child. What I've been told by people, especially um, those, those parents, is that people avoid them. They don't know what to say, so they say nothing. One woman told me that she saw people crossing the street when she lost her uh, husband. And she said, I think they were afraid they might catch a dead husband for me. We exile people. You know, we don't mean to, but we wait for them to be better. And then say, come back or yeah. or not. And you've worked in war zones as well, haven't you? How has that shaped your attitude towards this subject? I'm really grateful area? to those experiences. Um, I was in Bosnia during um, the last bit of that conflict in the mid-1990s. And, and I've been in, in Northern Ireland as well during a number of years of the Troubles. And I think what those experiences taught me, I was very humbled by the people that I spoke with. I learned to shut up and to listen, and to just be present, and to not need for them to say anything. Chaplaincy really followed on naturally for that for me. Well, I was going to say, yeah, because similar kind of role in a way, you're encountering these situations and people and their relatives who are dealing with death. People often say, what is, what is it the chaplains do? And, and mostly what we say, uh, or often what we say is, we have a, a ministry of presence. We are there and we have the time to listen and to be a part of someone's experience, good, bad, or somewhere in the middle. Sometimes it's really hard to just stand or sit with a family that is, you know, deeply distressed, um, but really don't want to be alone with that. And that's really helped me 
in this work around end of life. But, you know, the, the, the experiences from my, my years um, writing and reporting in conflict zones where people's lives, again, were traumatized was incredibly helpful. And it's been an enormous privilege to do both of these things. Yeah. OK, well, um, we'll discuss more of, of those ideas shortly. But Reagan, tell us about what you do, because it was um, you trained as a beautician to start with. Is that right? Before yes. you became a funeral director, an unusual trajectory. Yeah. How did <laughs> that happen? Um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do when I left school and I worked at McDonald's. And whilst I was there, I went to college and studied to be a beautician. I liked makeup, so that was sort of my reasoning behind that. And I started applying to makeup counters, thinking that was maybe what I wanted to do. And then just like that, I decided maybe makeup on deceased would be an really? idea. So from the makeup counter <laughs> yes, to thinking of that funeral parlour. Yeah. How did that idea come into your head? I had no yeah. idea. I wish I had an answer. For I was literally driving home and I was like, oh, I maybe would like to think about that. So... I looked into that and found it was the embalmers that do that here. Cosmetology on disease isn't really a job over here. Um, so I looked into You mean in the UK? Yeah. Right, I think, okay. You it's know, an American thing. It is, right. yeah. I think that's kind of where I had the idea from, you know, my girl Seen it in films. Stuff. I was going to yeah. say my girl, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's not a job. So um, it's the embalmers that do that. And at that time, I had no idea what an embalmer was. And I started looking online. And then I went to meet with a local independent funeral director, and they trained me and I had the name of the manager of the co-op so I wrote him every month for a year until he got me a job. Well are they usually family <laughs> businesses as well is it or an unusual it's, thing for a young person to go into? Yeah <laughs> I'd say more in the last 10 years the co-op especially have opened the doors more and it was more a case of who you know not what you know and it's not like that now. Yeah, well, tell us how you see your role as a funeral director then and how you think yeah. that might differ to what your perception was perhaps before you went into it or the rest of us, the way we think about it. And Yeah, so I started off as a funeral ranger before I got the job as a funeral director. So as an arranger, I would be in the office, meet the families, discuss with them the funeral arrangements, put everything in place, the day, the time, the minister, the cars, the flowers, order service, everything. And then I would hand it over to a funeral director to do it on the day. And that's the part that I struggled with. I've been with this family for a week now, speaking to them on and off, and I wanted to be the person to see it through on the day. Um, so I did finally get a job as a funeral director. So now I'm able to do both parts of it, arranging the funeral and being the person on the day. But with that as well, we're also on call. So we attend care homes and houses to bring loved ones into our care once they pass away. We can meet people to do prepayment plans to organise their own funerals and several community activities as well as a funeral director. They want you to be a pillar of your community. So I do the bingo at the care home. and oh, we really? did Yeah, we did Christmas card making. Um, we're also, Whose number's up? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, and we're also like a women's aid drop-off point at our local office. And we also offer support groups and bereavement services at some of our offices as well. So the role is vast and you can adapt it to suit your personality they encourage you to do things that reflect you so obviously we chose women's aid in our office and how do you work with them then so we're a drop-off point so we advertise a drop-off point we just handed over a hundred bags in july i think it was yeah but it seems uh, like similar to kathleen um because obviously events management all these things that you're talking about being a bingo call yeah. or whatever you can do that in other areas of life yeah but for you is it being there for people when they're going through this 
yes. going, when they're facing this issue of death in their family with a loved one? Yeah, so for me, it's looking after the families. It's being the person there for them to take away the pressure for them. But with the embalming side and things, for me, it was the last thing I could do for someone. That was the idea behind doing that as much as uh, like the makeup side that's not okay. that's so you're about. thinking about the person who's died as well yeah, as the family the last yeah. service I could do for them is you know prepare them you know a wedding if something goes wrong we can all laugh that off we can't at a funeral so you're the person making sure their last day their celebration of their life goes well so it's the last thing I can do for them and it's the biggest thing I can do for the family at that point in their life okay and with both of you I mean is this something that gets easier? I have to say, I'm not very good at being around people who are dying. I've experienced it with my grandparents. I found it really difficult to be around them and other members of my family who are around them at the same time. A lot of people must feel like that. Is it something that you took to quite naturally or do you get better at it? Or Well, I certainly learned. Uh, there was a steep learning curve for me, but part of that comes out of my own experience. A neighbour of of mine, I heard through the grapevine that she had ovarian cancer and she wasn't going to be living for much longer. And I kept thinking, I must go by, I must go by, I must put something through the through the door. But I didn't know her well, but I knew her well enough to say something. And I just waited and waited and waited. And I just thought, and I did, did nothing. The good news in the story is that they'd misdiagnosed her cancer and she lived and she and I now speak to each other. But before we got to this point where we now talk to each other, I, I had to go to her and say, I'm so sorry. I didn't know what to say. And what was her reaction? She was wonderful. She said, I understand. Okay. I understand. And, and I she'd think, experienced it with other people. She'd experienced then. it with other people. And I think, I think what I would say to others who feel that way is, even if you're uncomfortable, show up and say that. I'm, un- I'm uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. I don't want to get it wrong, but I hate this has happened to you. And I think what I see funeral directors do over and over again, I've learned a lot from from this industry and from people like you, really. Because what you show people is it matters what's happening. You know, you say on the day, this is important, this matters, we're going to do this right. And, you know, you do find over time better language. And But people will remember how you make them feel so much more than if you got the word right. Yeah, absolutely. Reagan, I mean, is that, it seems to me that you were sort of, you naturally took to this. This was something actually you were drawn to. Yeah, I mean, my brother calls me wee stony. He says I don't have a heart and it's not that at all. It's just if I cried every day at my job, I would be in the wrong job. And as well, we don't know all the families that are walking through our door. You get to know them and some people take it with humour. You know, some arrangements, you can have a good laugh with people, which may sound horrifying to some people but sometimes it's really light-hearted other times it's, it is really difficult because we've got to remember as well it's not all old ladies in their bed at 99 that pass away there's children and there's babies and there's people my age and things so every family is different and the way you deal with them is different the funeral itself might have a format but it's, for me it's finding ways to personalize it for them like I had one recently, they talked about how they love to do crosswords with her. So I had done a crossword for the back of the order service for where the retiral collection was going. And they loved that. And it's something so small, but that's unique to their service. Absolutely. Well, you're part of the co-op mm-hmm. um, and you have spoken about how you're involved in the community, how you deliver this service to people in your community. With co-op values in mind, how, how are they applied to what you do and how you serve the community through through this? Their big thing is one of their main things is be yourself always. That's when you're with your families, anything, you've just got to be yourself. Although you're representing the company, 
We're all different people and they want that to shine through in everything you do. So there's no set guideline for you have to do this, you have to go to this care home, you have to do this marketing. It's all things that you want to do and build in relationships in your community and how you want to take that forward. And Kathleen, um, how do you think cooperative values, you know, how can they be applied to what you're doing as a minister, as a filmmaker? Well, draw on the strengths of the community, allow the, you know, humanity and the humanness of who we are together in the good times and in the difficult times to influence how we do things together. Hard things, you know, because clergy are a part of, of a funeral, you know, often, not always. Yeah. And when we work together well, as funeral director and clergy, a facilitator, it feels, like you said, like something amazing we can do that no one else can do together in this last moment of this person's life. But to also bring that humanity, I want people to feel like they can laugh and smile and grimace a little at some embarrassing (laughs) thing. Bring humanity and life even into that moment where someone has, has died, because that's what brings us all together and, and brings I, it back to the celebration of their life yes. I yeah. guess as well yes yeah. but I love that they ask you to bring yourself to work yeah it makes so much difference it makes so much difference and this is an area where you really do have to dig deep don't you and kind of find resources inside yourself to yeah. be able to well the energy for it the compassion mm. do you find that are there days when you perhaps don't have that or yeah absolutely Every, we're all human everyone has a bad day but the people that come in my door are having a far worse day than me so I'm kind of good at just leaving my stuff at the door and the same as going out of work I have to leave it at work I can't take it home or to crack up you know you can't go home crying about yeah. every service we do so I'm quite good at switching off some things do pop into your head at night oh I must remember to do that or but no I have to be able to switch off but it's also not about switching off it's about knowing you've done something well and mm-hmm. important that is so satisfying people imagine working in hospice being a chaplain being a funeral home director would be really depressing quite frankly the they're some of the most wonderful places because we all have an understanding that life is short mm-hmm. and we're not going to be here forever so we just better go and enjoy every bit of it even on the bad days because there are you know people who would would give anything to have one of those mm-hmm. bad days again we asked you to both identify a particular challenge in this area So, Kathleen, would you like to go first? What's the issue that you think most needs to be addressed? Well, this whole idea that, you know, we we separate people who are going through this, let's just face it, challenging time in their lives. For instance, my particular faith connection is with the Methodist Church. And I know this the churches can be incredible places of support. But I also know and have heard others talk about coming into a church being one of the most painful places on a Sunday morning possible because people don't know what to say to them. They also feel like because they're bereaved or, God forbid, dying, that there might not be anything they might want to do. They wouldn't want to help with the coffee because they're dying. They might have always led, done things with the children, but they wouldn't want to do that now because they're dying. So we have to redefine our understanding of what where people who are living with grief and and health crisis can be actually valued contributing people as well as enjoying the life that's still theirs to have. 
So coming back to this thing that actually lots of people do find this really difficult, even in, you know, like you say, organisations like the church, this is still a really difficult issue for people to confront. Absolutely. It is It is difficult. And I think there's no shame in it. If we can, if we can name it, if we can begin to see and listen to people, tell us where it's been hard for them. Where have I felt left out? Where have I, where have I just been lost in my desire to sort of connect with people but still know that I'm in pain and I'm going to be a little strange? I might be a little inconsistent. I might even be a little grumpy today. And thinking about co-op values, openness is coming to mind. Is that Would that help? Is that something that we're struggling with? Or? Well, you know, I come from the U.S., which is a very extroverted culture. And anybody in the U.S. will tell me I'm on the extrovert end of that extroverted <laughs> culture. So I think we have an advantage because we're, we're used to talking about things with strong emotions. It's not as embarrassing. And I think the U.K. can be a much more careful Culture, reserved, for, reserved, <laughs> particular, reserved place. We need to build a bridge. It's almost cultural. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Reagan. What's what are the challenges that you face? What are the hurdles for us? It's people not leaving their wishes. So when families come in and they have no idea what their mum or dads wanted, so as even not even knowing if they wanted cremated. So for us, it's people just not saying what they want not talking about death enough. I know it's morbid, but not expressing anything to do with their funeral. A lot of people in Britain especially, we have that way of not talking about it, but our thing would always be everyone's dad or granddad would say, oh, just chuck me out with the bins. Everyone's been told that from someone. It doesn't help <laughs> when we come down to it. It doesn't help the family it in those help the days, family. weeks no, afterwards. because okay. they have no idea what they want. So they want. can't focus. Yeah, on... or and it's the... The worry that they don't, you know, they do the wrong thing because deciding someone's final resting place, that's a massive thing. So what do people do in this, in in that instance? Have you got any examples? Well, obviously they have to make the decision on burial or cremation and um, there's lots of people that they'll maybe go with cremation and then they'll say, you know, I've still got my granddad's, my granny, my two dogs and my cupboard in the bedroom because they don't know what to do and even people haven't expressed their final resting place for their wishes. This is the ashes yeah, that they have in that yeah. cupboard. Okay. Yeah, they've got the ashes in the cupboard and they don't know what to do with it. They've just got this massive collection of ashes and they can't decide the final resting place for them. When I began and I was on a training course, we were talking about this and what people do and they were talking about someone getting cremated and someone had asked, can their dog go with them? And everyone was like, yeah, that's fine. And I genuinely thought they were going to kill the dog. And like I was going to say, that was yes. my question. So everyone was like, and they meant, you know, they still have the dog ashes in the cupboard okay. so the dog ashes can go with the person. But for me... I just assumed that everyone was condoning the death of the family pet to go in the coffin. But it wow. was they have all these collection of ashes. And some people do leave the wish of, when I go, my dog's coming with me. They mean the ashes. It's not... Okay, <laughs> yeah. it's good to know. Good to have that cleared up. <laughs> well, one of the places now where it's possible to talk about issues around dying and in a very informal way is your local death cafe. And death cafes now are in countries all over the world. They're places where people gather to perhaps eat cake, but chat about any issues on this tricky subject. Well, our producer, Jeff Bird, went along to a death cafe in Manchester to find out why people want to attend. My name's Debbie Jones. I'm a funeral celebrant in my day job, but um, I run the death cafe every couple of months here in Chilton voluntarily. For me, I came because I was quite fearful of losing loved ones. 
So, yeah, that was one reason why I wanted to do the job that I do and and to start the Death Cafe and build community. I think people, well, I enjoy facilitating it just to create a space in which local people are building a community regularly around the one topic that might be close to their heart but difficult to talk about. And what kind of age range is common? It's a spread, I'd say, between 18 and 80-something and we've had up to 45 people and sometimes only around 12, so it varies each time. I went to four, four funerals in 18 months and, and a fifth friend died as well, so I was a bit, a bit overwhelmed by it and needed some opportunity to talk about it. Debbie and I have a mutual friend who recommended I come to it and this cafe is just around the corner from me, so it was just, well, this is meant to be. And to what extent has it allowed you to accommodate those events when they do happen? It's been very helpful, but it's, it's more than that. What I find so interesting is, is that I feel uplifted. You wouldn't think it, talking about death, you'd feel better afterwards, but, but, but I do. It's as if, like, talking about the topic takes some of the stress out of it. And so I've started doing things like trying to prepare my affairs for my family when I die, trying to not have too much clutter. And I've written a note of what to do if I'm dying <laughs> and, and things like that. So thinking through how to make it easier on the family. Well, in my experience growing up in a Christian family, I don't feel that death was comfortably talked about. So it, this is uh, completely outside of that. I don't know that there was a place to talk about it within religion. It's almost continuity of this is out of our hands it's God's will so I could see people of of different faiths really appreciating this kind of a space and maybe finding more of a connection with it with their faith practice but in the in the traditions that I grew up I don't feel that it was a, a conversation or something especially as a child you tried to shelter children from talking about these things and it's not helpful when a grandparent dies or a pet dies or anything like that so <laughs> I think I first decided I'd like to come because I was still feeling a little bit of grief about my mum's death. It had been several years before, but I realised that I had quite an aversion to the idea of death, the, the normal society's values about death. I was scared of it, couldn't understand it, and I wanted to just normalise it. Now, hearing about these cafes where people just talk about death it seemed to me to be a really sensible attitude as I was getting older myself anyway. I guess some people might say it's sensible but perhaps a little macabre. I'd say try it. I've found through coming here it hasn't been macabre at all. I've gone away sometimes with quite a joyful sense of coming to terms with the idea of death. You know, we've had some really uplifting discussions about it, which does sound a bit odd. And I've picked up some very practical ideas as well about dealing with it. Death cafes, that's um, the whole concept of the death cafe is something I'd not come across before I started working on this project. So are you both aware of the death cafe? What do you make of it? I wasn't till now. Okay. And I think it's a great idea. It's like, kind of like their own sort of bereavement group, but in a more relaxed setting. And I think when people are going through challenges everybody you know comes to the house when someone passes away they come to the house prior to the funeral maybe for the week after 
And then everyone sort of leaves you alone and they go back to their lives and you're sort of left still hurting and you maybe feel that people don't want to talk about it with you anymore. You maybe feel you're boring people with talking about it continually, uncomfortable talking about it in the setting of your immediate family and friends. So somewhere like the Death Cafe is people that are feeling the same as you and are happy to still talk about it and share your grief with you and help you through that. And Kathleen, it was interesting there, there was um, a woman who was a Christian and she said that she felt growing up in a Christian home, death was something that was taboo. I find that quite surprising. I mean, Christians talk about comforting mourners and you said, you know, the church seems like an obvious place to go sometimes. But what, what do you make of that? In a particularly Christian context, I once gave a talk about how people are really happy to to have the Easter bunny and all that stuff, but they like to skip over the part that led to that, the death part, because that's just really uncomfortable. Let's just get to the the happy, the happy new life and the <laughs> yeah. chocolate afterwards. Um, again, it's just another place where where there's a disconnect. And a death cafe is a great idea because it means people can go there with whatever it might be. But whatever it is, it's a safe place to do that. And I know people have backed away from me at a party. They ask me what I do and I start to tell them. That's um, interesting. So even just to talk about what you do, it, people find that difficult. I mean, I'm fascinated oh. by it, even though I find it difficult to be around people who are dying. But you encounter people who actually don't want to deal with the subject at all. Oh, my gosh. This okay. man said to me, please don't talk to my wife about this. And he meant well because she had been her, – her mother had died recently and he was trying to protect her. But sometimes people are protecting people from the very thing they're desperate to do. Well, interestingly, in the tape as well, there were people uh, talking about going to death cafes just to think about their own death, even if that wasn't imminent or, you know, and they hadn't experienced it with somebody else in their family. And also – planning their funerals as well, which leads us on to the solution to these challenges that we're yeah. talking about. Reagan, tell us, what do you see as a solution to the challenge that you mentioned? As little as just seeing if you want buried or cremated, just having the smallest conversation about it, whether there be a song on the radio and you say, oh, like, I would like that at my funeral, or there's a funeral on a soap, it opens the door to lightly talk about what you want. There's no easy way to dive in with someone and say, you know, what do you want for your funeral? But if if the opportunity comes up, a song or it's on TV, take that opportunity to talk about it. That's why we do things like this and we do the big music release, the funeral chart. It's a way to help people ease into the conversation because the difference in a family that come into me not knowing at all what to do and a family that someone's actually had a prepayment plan, they've left all their wishes, there's really not much for them to do and they're coming in just having a cup of tea with us and doing the smallest of details. And do you find that the family don't perhaps think about this too much until they're in that situation and then actually they realise it's really important to them? And most people, so most people who come in and their loved ones taking out a plan, they always say, I'm going to do this for me. Whether or not they come back is another thing. But most people leave and say, I'm going to do this. So my children don't have that worry or people that come in and they really not got a clue I'm going to sort mine out because I'm not having my son or daughter go through what I'm going through just now because it's awful. People are torn, not knowing what to pick. And, and this is because they want to give that person the best possible right. send-off yeah, they and they feel a right. huge burden of responsibility. Absolutely. And deciding, you know, where you, where you rest them for the rest of their days, you know, and 
just the smallest detail, even if they just have one thing that they know that you really, really wanted, if they knew there was a song you wanted, if they knew you wanted to be buried somewhere with a nice view or your ashes to go into the sea, something like that, having that small detail makes all the difference. Have you done it? I've not. I, I've thought about it. I'm quite liking the new way of doing things. Um, some people are opting for the direct crematorium, so it's not having a service at all. I quite like not to have anyone there for a funeral service, but whoever I leave behind have like a big party after. I like to make everyone playlists on Spotify, so I'd like to have my funeral playlist ready of all good songs and they can all just sit and do what they want. But at the end of the day, when I'm not here anymore, it's whoever I leave behind, it's whatever they take comfort from. So I wouldn't be offended if they decided to do something <laughs> completely different. Is this a growing trend then? It is. It's, it's what was it? Direct to direct crematorium. It's a new lower cost option. And unfortunately for some people, it's the only option because they haven't planned for it and they don't have money. Um, but some people, it's their wish that they don't want the big funeral. They don't want the big day. Other people want the horse and carriage. We're all different. We should all have something that caters to that. And if you plan for it, you know you're getting what you want. Like, I wouldn't like... Are you doing it for you or are you doing it for your family or both in equal measure? For or me, a bit more for yourself? For me, yeah, I don't want the funeral. I would like to know that I've left this playlist and they're all going to have bottles of wine, a meal and or whatever <laughs> and do it that way, celebrate my life a different way. Other people, they know that they want a funeral. They know they want a minister to say a prayer. They know they want their favourite track or their favourite hymn. So it's it's reflecting a life that you love. We all have unique individual lives. So your funeral should represent that as well. You can leave your wishes or take care of the financial side and pay for it. I mean, you can pay small amounts over a long period of time. But I mean, you can pay £15, £20 a month. I spend more on that and sweeties and a bottle of wine on a Friday night, you know? Or if you have the money to pay for it, yeah, pay for it. And that's the box ticked. A lot of people that come into us to do that, they say, that's it done. I've been thinking about it for a long time. That's it done. I feel better just knowing it and I can forget about it now. Okay. And uh, Kathleen, tell us the solution to the challenge that you're bringing. Well, you know, I, I work in mental health as well and I see so much pain around loss and and bereavement. And even if you're looking for help with bereavement, it's really, really a hard thing to find those resources available to you. So my big idea is a whole network of bereavement support groups, not run by professionals, but peer-to-peer, people who know loss talking to each other. And I see this in a kind of uh, 12-step AA-style availability model. I'm not saying it's a 12-step meeting. I'm saying in that way that you can go to any city or the country or and find a place where you can drop in on a group and spend time with people who will know what you've, you're living. To be able to go into a group where others will go, I really get that. I'm struggling with that. And I believe that GPs who's Practices, quite frankly, I know are overrun with people who are struggling and presenting with all kinds of basically bereavement related issues. They would bite our hands off to be able to refer people to groups like that locally. Where do you see them being run then? How would this? Well, think about again, I don't want to just say this is this is an AA model, but where are the places where you find an AA meeting? 
They may be in, in, in a library. Halls, in could be a church centers, hall. Yeah. Could be in a in a temple. Could be in the um, community centers. It could be many places. I'd like to see those those groups that perhaps host them, not always renting to them, but maybe being partners in this is a as a good thing for the community. We all work together and and support people. You know, there is a really good model of this in a group um, like this. Um, much more specialist, though. It's it's a group of survivors of bereavement by suicide. Finding support in each other for 20 years, this, these groups have met around the country uh, once a month usually, and people drive hundreds of miles round trip just to be able to be with other people who know what that's like. You know, there's lots to learn from that model. I think this is absolutely doable. We're not talking about intense resources. We're talking about enabling people to come to a place and then share that experience and share leadership. because It's people, being able to connect them, isn't it? it? It's just One of my other questions is, I, I guess if, you know, everyone's experience is quite complex, like you say, it might be somebody who's lost a child, somebody who's lost a partner. Are you thinking of matching people up with the exact same experience or is it more of a general I think loss? I would, I think that would, would really depend. It's, it's an organic thing. It comes out of the people's experience it's that welcome as well as being able to share. It's the welcome and being able to share, knowing that you're not going to embarrass somebody, that you're going to be in a place where people want you there. Yeah. And I think it's really doable. Yeah. How would you start it? Would it be connecting people online maybe initially or through GP surgeries um, initially? I, or? Well, I have thought about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I will say that I think we want to start with a, a couple of pilot projects um, in the greater Manchester area different kinds of, of, of communities of people, you know, across different maybe ethnic, uh, economic, um, cultural lines. Just start small and, and see how these work and also really start to talk to people who are who are doing these bereavement groups. I'm sure there are others. And and I think when the facilitators, I think facilitators would also be, of course, people who had who have who have been bereaved, but probably not people in the middle of an active bereavement. Thank you to both of you for such an inspiring and enjoyable conversation around this difficult topic. Such an important topic. To hear future episodes of More Than A Shop, subscribe to the podcast at morethanashop.coop or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than A Shop is a collaboration between Cooperatives UK, The Co-op, Co-op News, The Cooperative College and The Cooperative Heritage Trust. The series is presented by me, Elizabeth Holker, and it's produced by Jeff Bird on behalf